Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Thank you. So this morning, we're going to dive back into a series that we've been doing for a while called The Upside Down Kingdom. This is a series of conversations based on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, that is a section of the book of Matthew that's uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And it's considered sort of the most central teaching of Jesus. And I just want to remind you of a couple things that we believe about the Bible. First, um, we believe the central message of the Bible and the character of God is revealed in such a way that, you know, kids can understand it and trust it. But we also believe the depth of the scripture is such that you can spend your whole life studying this stuff and never reach the bottom. So we don't ever think that teaching is the last or final word on these big topics that we discuss. The goal is to provoke curiosity and conversation so that the people of God would wrestle with the text. And so to that end, we um, encourage questions right in the middle of the thing. Don't hesitate to interrupt. If you want to text introverts, if you'd like to text your questions in, you can do that, absolutely. Um, as Robert was saying, we have a class afterwards where more discussion takes place. Then we do a weekly podcast where often we'll address questions or topics that, that come up. And um, because we're dealing with you know, words straight from Jesus of Nazareth, uh, we just think all of that attention is worth cultivating in our community. So anyway, please feel free to engage as you see fit. Now, because it's been several weeks since we've been in the sermon, um, I know most of you have kind of memorized every teaching that we've done. Reflect on it daily in your, uh, as you're getting ready for work or school. But just in case that's not happening... Uh, I just want to remind you of kind of the context of the sermon. The sermon really begins in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, where we read this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is the central message of Jesus. And um, his parables are all about it. Uh, so much of his teaching is about it. And so when he begins to preach the kingdom of heaven, we're not, that's a summary statement. We're not given a ton of context for it. But then we get into Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And all of a sudden, he's preaching about the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 5, this is the really relevant point. This is kind of the thesis statement of the sermon. He says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, just a, a, by way of reminder, the word righteousness is this humongous word in the Old Testament that means justice. Righteousness and justice are the same word in Hebrew and in Greek. So these are incredibly broad relational concepts that we're talking about. By the time of Jesus, however, righteousness had been reduced down to three practices— Fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, giving to the poor. And the Pharisees had reduced them to those three practices, but almost exclusively righteousness in their eyes was attached to giving to the poor. And so it's a big deal when Jesus says, hey, 
and he's speaking to a crowd of people and his disciples, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees because the scribes and the Pharisees were considered to be the most righteous of Israel. And, um, and so Jesus goes on to level two critiques of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Hopefully this is review, yes? Yes? Eight of us, totally, yes, we're tracking. Um, <laughs> the first critique was that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was external. It was enough for them just to go around not committing adultery, right, or not murdering. But Jesus says the rightness and justice of his kingdom deals with anger and contempt and lust. He gives six illustrations of this. He's now, in chapter 6, moving on to the second critique. And the second critique, if you go to uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now stay here, if you would, David, for a second. What is righteousness? The fact that Jesus uses righteousness here and then he uses it in Matthew 5.17 is significant, right? So what does he say in Matthew 5.17? Your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And how did the scribes and Pharisees define righteousness? Three practices, right? What were they? Fasting, giving the poor, prayer. So what Jesus is going to do is take this principle right here and apply it to fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. And totally expose the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, who in their focus on only externals, have neglected the heart behind fasting, the heart behind prayer, and the heart behind almsgiving. Right? So his critique is, be careful not to practice prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, in front of others to be seen by them. Now, my goodness, this so speaks to our culture. The idea, remember in chapter five, he says, let your light, let your good deeds shine before others that they may glorify your father in heaven. But here he says, don't let other people see your good deeds. And so how do you reconcile those two statements? And the answer is, of course, why you're doing the good deeds in the first place. It's not wrong to get caught doing something good, but if you're doing the good in order to get caught, that's an issue. Make sense? The issue isn't doing righteousness. I mean, Jesus wants us to give to the poor, pray, and fast. But the issue is, for at least the group of Pharisees he's talking to here, they were doing those things in order to be seen by others. Have you ever been around somebody who does good but wants to make sure they get caught doing so? Right? This is a, a, a relevant issue in our day. And so notice he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. It's okay doing righteousness and it's okay people seeing it. But if your orientation is to do it in order to get praise from people, then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, chapter six is gonna use the language of reward all over the place. And in the Jewish economy, reward wasn't crowns in heaven. Reward was the blessing of life lived in obedience and the presence and blessing of the Father. And so we're gonna explore this a lot because there's a whole big section on treasure in heaven versus treasure on earth. We'll get to that. So. Park the reward idea. 
But Jesus then begins to give three examples, right? And the first one, shockingly, is giving to the needy. Do you see how he's directly going after the Pharisees' understanding of righteousness? Do you see this? This isn't random. These aren't three examples pulled out of nowhere. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Now, stop there for a second, if you would, David. This was, uh, we, we do have some evidence that this was actually an historical practice, but I want you to focus on the word hypocrite for a second. We've talked about this before, but hypocrite was a neutral word in, in, in Jesus' day. A hypocrite just mean a ma- meant a mask wearer. So let's say I were acting in a Greek drama, Um, instead of using my natural face to act happy or sad or angry, I would wear a mask. And so I would have an angry mask, or if I were, they didn't allow women in the Greek theater, and so you would wear, if you were a male, you'd wear a female mask if you had to, or angry mask, sad mask, whatever. Hypocrite just meant someone who has two faces. A face that's shown and a face that's behind. Make sense? Jesus, and, and, and I, I've read two sides of this, but some scholars argue that Jesus was the first person to use this negatively and apply it to religious leadership. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I want to believe it is. So he calls them hypocrites, mask wearers, two-faced. He says... When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the two-faced mask wearers do. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now this, oh, this is such a juicy statement. Go back, David. This is such a juicy statement. They've received their reward in full. This is a commercial term that means that our transaction is complete. There's nothing else. So if you were to go buy some jeans, which... I haven't done in a very long time, but if you were to go buy some jeans, and let's say those jeans were $50, and you you buy the jeans for $50, you take the jeans out of the store, the transaction is complete, correct? You are owed nothing else, because you have the jeans. So what Jesus, the picture Jesus is giving is the fact that these people say they're giving, but what, what they're actually doing is buying the praise of other people. And because they're buying the praise of other people, once that transaction is complete and they are praised, there is no remainder left of reward for God to give them. Does that make sense? So that's the irony. Instead of giving to God, they're actually buying the praise of people. And in that transaction, there's nothing left for God to reward. Ooh, next. But when you give, so he's contrasting, don't do it like them, but how should we do it, Jesus? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's just a Jewish idiom for total privacy. Next, so that your giving may be in what? Oh, now here's just a huge word in Matthew 6. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, Americans read reward as financial blessing, peace, prosperity, comfort. That's not what is in view here. The reward of following Jesus is Jesus in the New Testament. Right? And so we can't read reward language as just further material blessing. 
Some people do, right? The prosperity preachers will often say, yeah, if you give, you can't outgive God. If you give, God will give back. And sometimes that happens, but it isn't an algebraic equation. And it misses the point of the kind of heart that God wants to develop in his people. Now, next slide. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Now, we're going to spend the next two weeks on this section because in this section he gives us instructions on prayer and he gives us the Lord's Prayer. So, so we're going to park that for a second. Go to fasting, David, if you would. But I want you to see, it's almsgiving, prayer, and then fasting. Next slide. Yep, we're going to cover all of that next. I gave you too much, David. I forgot to cut that out. David, of course, is running the slideshow back there. Do we have the fasting section? Yep. There we go. And when you fast, if you don't know what fasting is, fasting is going without. In their case, it was food. But you can fast from technology. You can just, it's denying yourself something that is neutral but can have power over your life. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show that they are fasting. Now, again, this is Bible nerd stuff, but literally the Greek reads, they make themselves unrecognizable in order to be recognized. Yes, zing. Jesus, he knows this, right? So, so what they evidently did, the Pharisees... Um, Famously, there were, there were two required fasts, I believe, in the Old Testament covenant. Um, Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement, and the New Year. The whole community would fast on those days. But the Pharisees fasted twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, which happened to be market days, coincidentally enough. Oh my goodness. And so they would go disheveled to the market to show people that they were fasting making themselves unrecognizable in order to be recognized. Fascinating, though, there's a, a, a Christian document called the Didache, written around 100 AD, that encourages Christians to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, non-market days, so that no one will know. Jesus, of course, then says, truly I tell you, they've received their reward in full. Great. If it's attention you want, perfect, you got it. If you want likes and clicks, fantastic, done. God has nothing to do with that transaction. Next. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in what? Will reward you. <clears throat> so the general critique is pretty straightforward, correct? Correct. He starts this critique by saying, don't do your acts of righteousness. What are acts of righteousness? Prayer, almsgiving, and uh, fasting. Don't do them in order to be seen by others because hypocrites do that. Who are hypocrites? They have one true face and then one external face. If you're doing it for the praise of other people and the attention of other people, great. Paid in full, nothing left for God to bless. But you should cultivate disciplines that are done in secret, where you're not drawing attention to your giving, your praying, or your fasting. Now, let me ask you a question. Where do we see this same dynamic today in religious circles? Somebody answered, so yes, this is a non-rhetorical question. Where do you see it? 
Donna, was that you? Okay, I can't tell who that is. Hi, Kelsey. Now, how do you see it in social media? Ah, yes. Oh, have you guys heard of the phrase virtue signaling? This is the definition. The action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position. It's being seen as good without having to be good. So I can go on a missions trip and and do a whole bunch of photo ops and then post those photo ops, and, and what does Jesus say to those? You have your reward in full. All your comments and likes, great. Right? Now, it's not bad that people notice you going on a missions trip, but if, if the attention being drawn to the fact that I'm serving is such that it corrupts the pure motivation of actually being a blessing, John... Oh my goodness. Let me wrap up the social media point and then I'll go to pastors. He said, how do you see this affecting pastors? It doesn't. We're perfect. (laughs) So we see it in social media. Social media is where I signal that I'm good to my tribe, that I have the correct opinion. And we see this anytime something big happens in our culture. Right? Everyone's retreats to their political silos. You have to say the right things so your tribe applauds. And then we've got, yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yes. Question is, what's the difference between posting to draw attention to you and like healthy kind of posting that could inspire others. And the difference in my mind is, is who, who's getting the attention? Is it you or is it the need? Right? Is it, is it the blessing that is being brought and the mutual? Because missions, of course, can be a really dangerous thing. Right? Very often we go as the saviors to people. Instead of going as mutual learners, as people who need them as much as they need us. So your posting can totally reflect that dynamic. I've learned so much from this person, right? These are phenomenal questions, but the danger of social media is nothing is ever done in secret, right? And in that case, God simply says, fantastic. Transactions done. Uh, Now, so we see it in social media. Kelsey, thank you. I even had a definition prepared, hoping that some intelligent person would say that. Hello, Susie Lynn. Somebody texted in a question asking, is the word secret being used different than our Oh, that's a great question. Let me do this one and then that one, okay? The word question is, is the word secret being used differently than, than our definition of secret? Um, and I think there are some different nuances. In other words, well, let's go to your question first. Uh, sorry, I started answering. See, this is fantastic. We love this stuff. So, um, do you see this with public ministers who are paid by churches? Do you see this sort of hypocrisy? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Paid religious people have a financial incentive 
to present themselves more righteously than they really are. And in an unhealthy community, the community will demand a perfection that cannot be true of the pastor, and the pastor will pretend at a perfection that is absolutely not true of him or her. And then we get these scandals where you're like, where did that come from? Well, the distance between the face and the real person has been growing. And so we cannot, we, I mean, and, and no one does this. We'll talk about it all the time, but no one actually resists celebrity. But that's, that's a toxic thing in, in the Christian world. There's no celebrityism in the Christian world. That dynamic is corrupt. And so absolutely, as somebody who teaches God's word and then goes home and does something dumb and says something stupid in front of my wife, she, can, she very easily and has said, Nice going, preacher. And that's why I try, I, I don't ever let her come to church because I don't ever want her to hear this. No. But we see this, we see this with all sorts of speech, right? Oh, and, and we make it from stage. Stage is just deadly. We make it seem so easy to follow Christ and so beautiful and it's just perfect. And here's our Instagram life and faith and none of that. We just have to learn to be suspicious of it all until you see the fruit of someone's life. How big their ministry is irrelevant. Loads of people, right, flock to things that are false. And, and what's the fruit that looks like? The character of Jesus. Does this person talk and act, not perfectly, but in, even in their imperfection, are they honest and non-defensive and willing to admit fault, right? So, Back to secret, this is phenomenal stuff because it's so relevant, right? So there is a difference between um, secrecy and privacy. And I learned this in therapy. Um, I didn't know this. Um, Secrecy is when no one knows the real you. Privacy is when the right people know the real you. And so... Obviously, my wife and I talk about our giving and our praying and those sorts of things. And I do have a couple people in my life who are very, very aware of my struggles. But that's, I, I no longer think it's healthy to work all of that out publicly. Whereas before, I thought, oh, that's what Jesus is asking us to do here. No, no, no. I think he's asking us to be private about our devotional life. And so there are some who will know but we're not doing it for the sake of their knowing because they know all the crap too. Man, so good, you guys. So we see this in social media, right? This is what social media does. We see it in pastoral ministry. We also see it in evangelical subcultures sometimes. I don't know what your church experience was like, but there are some church experiences that are so suffocating, you can't even raise a question. And so we're taught to pretend Right? You can't be upset, you can't be bummed, you have to have a cliche ready at all times for anything that is awful in someone else's life. Right? You can't be slobbery and snotty crying over something. You just have to be, oh, we're just great, thank you, Brett, bless the Lord, God is good all the time. And he is. But do we, are we living in that? <laughs> no. So there are parts of evangelical subculture, many of which we have fled from, 
that forces this uniformity that is just absolutely constricting. And it teaches us to pretend. And so churches has been a big game of pretending. We don't ever talk about real stuff in real ways with real people who are actually falling apart, right? So often we can share our struggles, but only if in there the past tense. Yeah, I used to struggle with pornography instead of, well, you know, I've wasted eight hours yesterday, right? I mean, we just would react totally different to those two confessions. Um, I think we also see it with the dynamics of donors, Often people who, who give a lot of money carry a lot of weight. And so churches will be hindered by the dynamics of capitalism. If we were to talk about this thing the Bible clearly talks about, but has been politicized in our world, people will leave. Giving will drop. And so often we'll, we'll flinch at the prophetic witness of the scriptures and we'll just make that palatable to wherever people are at. Any other instances you want to add? <laughs> Those are some that I've seen in me. So, I'm assuming, okay, no hands. I think that, that covers it. And then there's your hypocrisy, which we won't even get into, but let me see, we all notice it, okay? Um, that's not true. Now, in the American church, why is this, this play acting, why is it so prevalent and part of the reason is we've accepted a gospel that doesn't do anything to tell us how to live, but it tells us how to die. In other words, the, the way I was presented the message of Jesus was in a courtroom setting. So I'm guilty, God is holy, and he's a just judge, and he has to find me guilty or it violates his justice. So I am condemned. I am punished, Jesus steps forward and takes my punishment so that I trade my sin, Jesus takes that, and I get his perfection. And so when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. And then I get a ticket to heaven when I die. I was in the ER recently for some just stupid abdominal thing, nothing at all serious. Do not even worry about it. But it was fascinating at two in the morning to be at Williamson Medical Center with nobody else. But there were these tracks, how to conquer your fear of dying. And it was that exact story told in the track. Now, how is the Christian story presented in that moment? What's the problem it's dealing with? What? Death. Right. What's the implication? Doesn't have a ton to say about anything else. The primary focus of the work of Jesus is what happens when you die. And so we're presented with the idea that there's a legal transaction that happens in heaven and all you have to do is pray a prayer. The bank accounts are swapped and then you can live however you want to because Jesus has forgiven everything you'll ever do. So can you see how that story is ready-made to encourage the kind of two-facedness that is so prevalent in the American church? Can you see that? One problem with the way of telling that story, it ignores all the teaching of Jesus. There's no mention of the kingdom of God in that story. There's no talk of the Sermon on the Mount. None of that is captured in that telling. And I'm not saying that telling is false. I'm just saying it is so incomplete. And so I think one of the reasons why 
this two-facedness is almost encouraged is because we accepted, instead of a king with a kingdom, we've accepted a forgiver of sins and a place in heaven when we die. And if, it's, and if that's all it was, that'd be awesome. But that's not all it was. And so as we're living into the Sermon on the Mount, the idea is that God isn't interested in our external behavior. He's not interested in sin management. Because on that story, as long as you believe the right things, you're good. It doesn't matter how you live. It's like the great virtue signal to God, right? As long as I know the right answer is Jesus, it doesn't matter what I've done with my life. And that is not how Jesus presents his movement. And so one of the things we have to recalibrate is that that, thin, hollow story doesn't bring us into kingdom life or kingdom power or kingdom peace, where fruit just comes naturally because we're being transformed in the image of Jesus. Does this make sense? Where does that leave us? Well, Jesus says it this way, and then um, I'll wrap us up unless there are any other questions. In Luke 12, Jesus said, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Be on your what? Against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is... The invitation for us this morning is to commit ourselves to being 100% real. Not in front of everybody, but in front of a few people, and certainly before the God who has loved us, blessed us, and received us already in Christ. Be on guard against hypocrisy. I want my kids who sit in these seats to see the same dad appear that they do at home. Correct? I mean, I'm actively working to make sure I'm not the hero of the stories that I tell up here. Now again, that's like on-platform stuff, but that's just one dumb example. The war against this is ongoing and everlasting. And so my question for, for us this morning, by way of sort of communal practice, we always end the service talking about uh, receiving the Lord's Supper together. And around the room, there are stations where the bread and the cup are available. We have COVID-friendly, and then we have pieces of bread that you can dip in juice um, today. So we're excited about that. And it, the bread is gluten-free, by the way. This is not. Um, for those of you that care about such things. But next to those um, piles of bread are pieces of paper where we spend a lot of time writing. And it could be prayers or whatever. But my question for us this morning is simply this. Where do you wear a religious mask? Don't put your name, but like, where are you pretending? Where do you feel you have to? Where do you feel like you have to play act before God? Where do you feel like you have to play act before others? What relationships do you feel like, well, I, I could never say that because they might think bad of me. Is it, in, is it in social media? Do you find yourself drawn to just making sure everyone sees that I have the right opinions about the right things? Because I've got a list of all the ways I'm tempted to play act, and I was just curious what your list is. You can put your name. We'll put it up on our church website um, later. 
no, we'll never do that. But the idea is that we would bring whatever that area is, whatever that secret, the bad secret is, whatever that mask wearing is, we would write it down just in a word or a phrase and we would leave it there. And in its place, we'd pick up the Lord's Supper to recognize that that doesn't have to have power over us, that Jesus has come to forgive that part. And the real you he's interested in is that you, not just the religious you, but the real one with all of its warts and foibles. So I'm going to pray for us, and then if you, uh, you don't have to do this, but if you'd like, you can go and write that down. Take the bread and the cup. All are welcome, and we'll continue our time together. So, Father, you do see what is done in secret, no matter how great we are at pretending. And so we invite you to show us that that is not a terrifying thing, but just such liberation. That you've taken all of that into account and we don't have to be afraid of you. Your posture towards us isn't condemnation or wrath. Your posture toward us is love and freedom and blessing. And so we pray that we would be a community that just is on guard against what is so easy, the play acting that is so easy, to present ourselves far more righteous than we are. And so to that end, God, would you give us a bit of insight this morning into our own hearts and practices. We want to see those places healed and freedom come to them in the name of Jesus. And so we bless you and thank you. Amen. Mm -hmm.